BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. It's Friday, December 23rd, 2016, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow, and you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode is sponsored by Children International. Poverty is a vicious cycle, but it can be broken. When you give to Children International, you're giving children the health, education, empowerment, and employment they need to break free for life. At Children International, 84% of every dollar goes toward helping children. That's how you know you're not just making a donation, you're making an impact. This giving season, give something that counts. Donate today at children.org slash give. That's children.org slash give. And this episode is brought to you by Heifer International. Heifer International's mission is to end hunger and poverty while caring for the earth. Heifer International works to end hunger by providing livestock, agricultural training, tools, and education to small-scale farmers. So give a gift of Heifer this holiday season. Check out heifer.org slash mines for more information or call 888-548-6437. And once again, that's heifer.org slash mines. Heifer International. Help end hunger. This week, we're going to talk to Patrick Wolf. He's an American chess grandmaster. And in fact, in 1988, he beat the world champion Gary Kasparov. Now, granted, it was during a simultaneous exhibition in which he was playing against five others. It was one of the shortest losses by Kasparov in his career. In just 25 moves, he was bested by Patrick Wolf. I've long been interested in how expertise is developed, and chess is a perfect case study for how people get better at stuff, to understand how it is that he was able to amass such an amazing skill, and also in part because he's now involved in coaching and training others. So wait, you can learn to become a chess grandmaster? It's not just some sort of skill that you have to have to start with? Well, that's 
an empirical question. Uh, and I think that's where a lot of the debate has fallen. There is still a huge camp that suggests that there is something innate about people who ultimately become chess champions uh, and that some people seem to learn faster than others. But no one will argue that a lot of practice is involved. And that's one of the reasons why uh, chess masters have been sort of the perfect case studies for studying this. And, and we've learned a lot about how memory works uh, by looking at the development of expertise in chess masters. They see the board differently. And, and Patrick and I talk a little bit about that. But there are classic studies um, on how this works. And you know, Patrick was my choice for this because he's also the author of The Complete Idiot's Guide to Chess. And that's about the level <laughs> that I understand chess. You know, I played as a kid a little bit, but, you know, I certainly don't understand all the complicated moves. In fact, if you go to Wikipedia, it tells you all the moves that he made in order to beat Garry Kasparov, and it just looks like gibberish to me. He also uh, graduated from Harvard, and uh, the trophy of the Harvard-Yale intercollegiate chess match is named the Wolf Cup in his honor. Wow. I, I am really curious. Most of the incredible chess players I've ever met in my life would fall under the word savant. Did he strike you as a savant? Ah, that's a good question. You know, I would say that there is a savant-like quality to the way he thinks. I find him very sharp and he's very focused. Um, but I wouldn't say that... You know, if, if I hadn't known that he was a chess master and I met him at a cocktail party, I'm not sure I would have, you know, thought that that was the case. Like, I, you know, it's not like something I would have picked up immediately. You know, sometimes some people who you meet who are savants, like it's immediately obvious <laughs> um, from just from the way that they converse. But, um, you know, Patrick, you know, just seems like a, a, a normal guy until you start talking to him about chess. So let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Patrick Wolf. This week's episode is brought to you by Blurb. Blurb's free bookmaking platform allows you to create customized, professional-quality photo books for your loved ones from your computer, iPhone, and iPad. Want to throw an album from your phone onto the pages of a book? You can make a book in minutes with their new mobile app. It's fast and easy book creation. You can make thoughtful, one-of-a-kind gifts that won't be forgotten. You can make family photo books, travel books, cookbooks, Instagram books, and more. Turn your most popular holiday recipes into a cookbook the whole family can enjoy. Relive your family's memorable moments in a photo book featuring the best of 2016. They have free creation tools in a range of formats like photo books, trade books, magazines, and ebooks. So if you want to put your memorable holiday photos onto the pages of a beautiful book, go to blurb.com minds and enter code minds for 25% off quality custom books. That's blurb.com minds and code minds, M-I-N-D-S, at checkout for 25% off. Blurb, make a book, leave your mark. And this week's episode is brought to you by Crazy Good Turns. If you're looking for a dose of happiness this holiday season, check out Crazy Good Turns, a podcast celebrating people who do amazing things for others. Each episode tells a different vivid story about someone stretching the boundaries of human kindness to help people in need. The most recent episode focuses on one single mother's joy and gratitude upon receiving a donated tree and how she inspired a group to play Santa and spread cheer by delivering trees to those who would otherwise go without. Here's a clip of what you'll hear. My artificial tree that I thought was trash 
and it was going to mean everything to this family. It was going to be the centerpiece of their holiday celebration. So that really turned my head around about the importance of a Christmas tree and what it meant to people. I had never really thought about it before. I'd certainly always taken it for granted in my life. And there are probably hundreds of other families that are just like this, that want but can't afford a Christmas tree, and it means everything to them. That was really the catalyst for the organization. That was the inspiration for it. Check it out at crazygoodturns.org or search Crazy Good Turns on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Patrick Wolf. Thank you very much. So people who have been interested in learning and memory have studied chess experts for many, many years. In fact, chess expertise has been one of the shaping forces of how we think about learning and memory. So I want to start out with understanding how you develop the expertise. So what first got you interested in chess? And how did you first start knowing that either you were something that you were good at or something that you wanted to keep practicing? Well, I was I was four years old when I saw my father playing over the um, chess games between Bobby Fischer and Boris Spassky. They were on TV, and 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 uh, he was playing over them. Um, and I was interested, and asked him what it was, and he explained to me it was chess, and and that was that. But then uh, I think about a year later, at least this is the story I've been told, um, at the kindergarten where I went to school, uh, you know, there was an open open house and, and we went and there were chess checkers sets and I wanted to learn chess. Um, and I think my father tried to teach me checkers first, but I said, no, I, this is what I want to learn, I guess, because I've seen him playing it. Um, and, and we played. And uh, I still vaguely remember the checkmate, um, how I lost. And, um, and then nothing much happened from that either. But for some reason that nobody really knows or remembers – when I was about seven, seven or eight years old, I got really into chess. I just started taking out chess books and playing over them. I got a um, uh, a Christmas present, Bobby Fischer's uh, book, My 60 Memorable Chess Games, which is a classic. And I played through every single one of those. I would play every day, uh, like just play th- over them. Somebody, I got a chess set for for birthday or Christmas, something like that, and I would play over Um and I was, I've always been sort of a very focused person and I just really, really got into it and kept playing more and more. Then I played more with my father at the age of eight or nine. And eventually we got to the point where we were pretty evenly matched and I'd get very, very unhappy when I lost. So now as a parent with kids around the same age, I can totally understand the situation. But, you know, my parents basically decided, well, we can't stop him from playing because he obviously loves playing, but we can't keep doing this because this is crazy. So there was a local chess club in Northampton, which is the town in Massachusetts where I grew up as, at that age. And, um, and they, they brought me to the chess club. Very, very nice people. There was one person in particular, uh, a man named Dwayne Catania, who ran, ran the chess club there. And, um, I, I, you know, I, I started playing the, the local people. It was wonderful. And I really got wonderful for my parents because I was no longer playing my father and wonderful for me. I was really playing and enjoying it. And they got me into chess tournaments. And so at the age of nine, I played in a local chess tournament in Northampton and, and won for my age group. And then at the age of 10, I played my first grown up tournament where both grown-ups, you know, all people of all ages were competing. 
And from then on, I was just hooked and and I got really engrossed in it. So just to backtrack a tiny bit, when you mean you play over it, so let's say you're reading you know, the Bobby Fischer book and you set out your chessboard. Yep. And so you're literally just moving the pieces as he describes them in the book? Yes, but also, uh, I'm moving the pieces to play through the game, but also they're annotated, which is to say the you know you give each move and then at at various points in the game fisher will um, or anybody who's annotating a game will say okay we play this move now here are some of the alternative moves here's what's happening in the position and it's this is the way that people study chess games and they analyze them and they present them for other people to read and so i was reading through that and and learning through through the mind of fisher i mean and, and i've often um counseled people that if you want to get better at chess um play through the annotated games annotated by the very best players in the world because that way you really get inside their minds and you can start to to learn to think the way they do. So this is really interesting because, you know, a lot of the way in which we train people to become experts, we now use this term deliberate practice and one of the key components of deliberate practice is that you need to have a teacher mm -hmm. that helps you. So in this sense, uh, the way you described your uh, entry into chess, there, there was no teacher except the people that you were reading from. So yeah. in a sense, Bobby Fischer was your teacher. No, that's right. And I, I was, I suppose, self-taught to that degree. I had teachers as a, as a, as a kid, as particularly as a teenager, but primarily I was self-taught. That's not unusual. I think most um, chess grandmasters, they may have trainers at some point. In fact, I think many of them do. But bef but long before they get to the point where they're sort of that level, they are self-taught. That's the way really all that I'm aware of, pretty much all good chess players have evolved. And um, and chess is, I think it's a, it's a game to me that's very interesting in this, in the following way. Um, we know that we're very bad at it relative to computers, right? Like, I mean, we've only had modern computers for sort of call it six decades and modern computers now can absolutely trounce even the best chess players in the world. So obviously chess is something that is better suited for a computer than for a human. And yet we humans have actually been able to get quite good at chess. And the reason for that is uh, the feedback loop is really perfect, right? So like you can exactly replicate what you did and and dive into as much depth as you have the ability to each subcomponent to understand exactly what were the alternatives, how things could have gone, and and learn from and and there's a very clear outcome, right? You win, you lose, and there's no extraneous um, uh, effects, right? It's either there's no dice, there's no weather, you know, there's nothing, there's no referee, like it's, it's absolutely pure. And so that feedback loop, it's the purest I've ever encountered really. And, and it, it enables us to get really good at something, even though we're, it's our brains aren't in some sense that well suited to it. I mean, think how much better we are at recognizing faces, for example, relative to, you know, to playing chess. But but that feedback loop enables us to build a very high level of expertise. Well, it's interesting that you kind of bring up the faces part, because for some people, when they look at what's happening in a person who becomes a chess grandmaster, is that it becomes a little bit more like recognizing faces in yep. the sense that, you know, you see the chessboard and you can recognize it as one uh, you yep. know, move or one thing rather than... Right. So there, there's a series of 
of, I'm sure you're aware of this, a series of famous um, experiments in cognitive psychology. Uh, there was a Dutch psychologist, uh, De Groot, I think is his name, mm -hmm. who did a number of these. And the, 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 the terminologist chunking, mm -hmm. right? And I, a, a good friend of mine actually is a cognitive psychologist. And so 20 years ago, and he's also a chess player. And so 20 years ago, I actually participated. He did some experiments and I was his test subject for some of these. Um, and I, it, it is very striking the difference between all chess players know this, but you know, you could just sort of like demonstrate this experimentally. Like you take a bunch of chess pieces and you just put them randomly on a chessboard. And my ability to remember that is literally no better. In fact, probably slightly worse than your ability to remember that. But you take, um, you take chess pieces in a in what I would term a sensible arrangement, right? Like that could arise from a chess from a game between two good players, and I can remember that position much, 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 much better than most people can. And the reason is because when I look at the position, I'm not seeing individual pieces on individual squares of a board. What I'm seeing is collections of pieces that chunk together into. Um, uh, configurations that make sense, and and it's it's those configurations that I'm remembering. So instead of remembering, you know, there's 32 pieces and pawns for both sides. So let's say a position has like 20, 24 pieces and pawns both sides together. I may only be, or a, a, a chess card master may only be looking at like three or four of those configurations, and the configurations themselves are interacting in ways that make sense. And then when you go back and you and you quiz the grandmaster, um, the grandmaster will remember the position nearly perfectly, but then will say, well, you know, this pawn might be on this square or that square, or the, or the rook might be on this square or that square. And it doesn't really make much of a difference for the position. Either way would make sense. So I can't really remember exactly which square it was on, right? And um, it's, it's, it's this chunking. It's the way that our brains make sense of things to remember them. And when we think about how deliberate practice can affect change in someone's performance, usually we don't see a very incremental increase. We see a plateau and then a leap and then a plateau and then a leap as you kind of, you know, change the way you represent whatever mm -hmm. it is that you're doing. So chunking, you know, being one way. So do you remember as a kid um, sort of finding it easier in these kinds of leaps or did, did you, was it just in, in terms of accumulating uh, this knowledge of all of these different, you know, potential alternatives or or, or games or pieces. Well, I guess it was I guess it was both. There was um there was a there was a kind of magic time for me as a chess player um, between I'm sort of remembering like roughly speaking the age of twelve to the age of fifteen. Um, those sort of like three or four years where my ability to play just sort of it just went up exponentially it, it, like like every week i was just getting like so much better and it was just it was just happening I, like of course i was playing i was thinking about it all the time i was but it's not like i was checking off boxes of like now i know this and now i know that it was just it was just happening and that's a very common occurrence like like chess players who are really who who are talented and work hard and love the game and and develop in this way i think we all go through some kind of curve like that um and it's funny because i am even though i don't really play anymore and now i i've been in a different career for 20 years and so on and so forth i at this point i still am a better chess player than i was then as a 15 year old kid um 
but I've never experienced anything since like that kind of incredible exponential curve where I was just getting it like I was almost automatically getting better. And by the way, you can quantify that because in chess, uh, we have something called an ELO rating. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's a, um, a mathematical formula that um, that produces a four digit number and um, and generally speaking the four digit number ranges from between roughly 1000 and 3000 so the very best human actually computers have higher ratings than 3000 but the very best human chess player the world chess champion is Magnus Carlsen and his elo rating is about 2840 2840 um, so my elo rating when i was 12 was about 1200 and then um three four years later my elo rating was 2400 2500 well let's say 2400 so remember like it basically doesn't go any higher than 28 like if you're 2800 you're playing for the world chess championship right and at, and at the age of 12 i was 1200 and like the average chess rating is 1500 and so i was going from 1200 which is sort of maybe like bottom 30th percentile or something like that or 20th percentile and in four years i went to 2400 which is basically like 99th percentile <laughs> right um and is it's, it's really weird like it's just it just happened um but but it does happen because you you're just learning to see the and think differently and it's just that understanding is just all coming together in a way that you know you can't really explain it's just happening so chess has long been uh you know at the forefront of the argument between talent and genes mm -hmm. right or talent and, and practice i should say talent being the genes component sure. practice and and of course there's evidence on both sides you know there's lots of families of chess players who seem to you know keep putting out great chess players uh and then there are people like the polgar sisters who seem seemingly were trained by their parents mm -hmm. from birth to become uh chess masters and they they all did really well. What do you think about that debate? And and what where does your experience what does your experience tell you about that? Well, I mean, I'll give you my my some perceptions. I mean, I I can't answer that question. Obviously, it's it's just too too difficult, too complicated. I mean, the Polgar said I know all the the you know, I know Judith and Zuza and, and Sophia. Um, Judith was the one who became the best, um, and I would say. Um, even there, it's very hard to disentangle, like, to what extent was Judith just more talented? To what extent was, you know, Zuza, now she, she, she goes by Susan because she lives in the U.S., but she's Hungarian. So Zuza was the oldest, is the oldest of the three, and she was sort of the first one to learn. And then the other two somehow came behind her, and maybe they benefited from having her. And Sophia is the middle one. Um, was clearly very good. I think many people would say she was also very talented, but somehow didn't seem to have the same drive, the same sort of killer instinct, whereas Judith, the younger one, very, very talented. Clearly, she became one, I think she was sort of top 15 or 20 in the whole world. Um, you know, and she she must have had a lot of talent, but also seemed to have this sort of killer drive personality and then also benefited from having her two older sisters. I mean, it's just impossible to disentangle these things, right? I can certainly tell you that my two kids, neither one of them plays seriously. Uh, I have a 10-year-old son. He'll turn 11 in a couple of weeks. Um, I have an 8-year-old daughter. 
Uh, they both wanted to learn because we have chess sets all over the house. Um, <laughs> and they both learned pretty, pretty well. My son Samuel sort of like took to it more and studied more and he knows more about it. My my daughter, Athena, she she never learned, she never read a chess book, never learned these things. But they both, I think, are talented. I can see the they, I can just see, and I've I've worked with enough kids. Like they pick things up quickly, they make connections. Now, obviously, their father's a chess player, so they've heard me talk about. It. Maybe they they're able to understand me probably better than most grownups. It's just so hard to disentangle these things. There does seem to be a pretty substantial talent component. That I think that's that I think is is indisputable. Like it, it, there are just some people who are better and they just take to it for whatever reason. Their brains just are molded to it. Um, but it's also true that people work hard and you can't get um, very good at chess without working really hard at it. Mm -hmm. So when you started uh, competing, mm -hmm. uh, and as you mentioned, there's this kind of sense that you don't, it's just about, um, if you know enough, then you should always be able to win the game. That's how the computers by brute force, you know, are able to best us. So did you ever find that there were kind of performance issues that would come online? Or are chess players just kind of immune to that? And is it just about, you know, as you have more knowledge than your your competitor, you will win. Well, I'd say a couple things. So first of all, um, so most chess games are lost as opposed to won. And what I mean by that is um, we can't prove it because the, 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 the size of a chess, it's just, you know, the, the space of possible moves in a chess game is, is too large. But it's, it's pretty... I think most people, most most chess players, most grandmasters would agree that chess is almost certainly a draw if played correctly by both sides, um, which means usually, in fact, I'd say almost always, you can point to a mistake. Now, sometimes there's a number of makes, sometimes mistakes, sometimes on both sides, but usually you can point to a mistake that someone's made. Um, the computer beats us at this point largely just because of the sheer ability to calculate plus the sort of the 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 evaluation software that it's running is now quite good. So the combination of a of a good evaluation software, obviously not human level because the computational ability is so off the charts and still close enough between us and them, but but a good evaluation software plus this very strong computation. So they're just sort of better chess players. But another reason computers often win is uh, usually win is they don't make stupid mistakes. And it's easy as a human to make a stupid mistake at some point. So one thing in terms of performance issues that you asked, um, nerves, um, stamina, focus, these things matter. And they matter in an individual game and they matter aggregated across multiple games. And some um, people are just better performers than other, putting aside the ability and the knowledge. And then the last thing I would say is you've got to throw into that mix. Sometimes uh, a chess, you know, you have two grandmasters play and um, the, the game always starts the same way, right? So the beginning of a chess game is called the opening. And as you might imagine, there's an awful lot of work that can be put into figuring out how to get the best possible position out of the opening. And sometimes what will happen is one grandmaster will just, you know, come up with a new idea, home preparation, you know, having gone and, and analyzed it before. And it might change the evaluation. Like people thought, oh, well, this position 
offered roughly equal chances. But actually, you, you play this idea, it's actually much better for one side. And so sometimes just knowing the opening better is so that's where sort of the knowledge as opposed to the ability or the performance will come into it. Um, usually between two well-matched grandmasters, once you're out of the opening phase, it's not so much about knowledge as it is about um, ability, right? Just sort of you know, raw ability to understand and calculate. And then all these performance things about, you know, handling your nerves and making good decisions under pressure and so forth. So do you think there's some creativity in that? And, oh, does, sure. it, and does it happen like, is it like improvisation or is it more like you go home and you prepare and you incubate a new idea and then you bring it to the game? Well, it's both. It's both. Um, I mean, preparation matters a lot, especially at the higher and higher levels, right? Because the, the, the baseline level is so high. If someone really brings a new idea, really make a big difference. But there's absolutely um, creativity and improvisation. And it, it's just mediated through um, chess ideas. So like um, one of the very best chess players in the world, one of the best chess players of all time is a friend of mine. He's an Indian chess player named Viswanathan Anand. He was the world chess champion for a number of years. And I, we were friends and I worked um, with him. I helped him prepare for several matches and so forth. Um, and one thing I observed about, about Anand is he used um, humor as a way to identify ideas. It was literally the case that things that were funny to him on the chessboard were sources of ideas, right? And that sounds that might sound sort of strange or odd to somebody who's not a chess player, but to somebody who's a chess player, that can make total sense. Oh yeah, sure. Like there is something about this configuration of pieces. Like it doesn't look normal, but it somehow makes sense, which in, in a way is sort of the definition of humor, right? And and using that, being aware of that and being able to tap into that gives you access to ideas that wouldn't necessarily be uh, apparent. And then, of course, you have to bring the analytic and calculating component to, you know, because some things might be funny, but they might not work. But remember, right, like, like you have to defeat an opponent. And so you have to play not just well, but differently. You have to do something that's not anticipated. So that sort of ability to bring humor to it actually can be very valuable. And it's just one example. I mean, like you absolutely see creativity expressed over the chess board. It's just hard for people who aren't hardcore chess players to understand it. And so let me let me get a sense of what it's like for you to be in front of another grandmaster and you're playing a game. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of want to get inside your head for a minute and and let's say you've, you've done the opening, let's say it was the other person's move first, and now you're reacting. How many moves ahead uh, do you look? And is it always consistent? Is it semi consistent? I mean, anytime you make a move, do you predict in your mind what the next three or four moves will be? Or even if that might change, given that your opponent might do something else? I mean, how, how does that work? Well, it, it, it really absolutely depends on the position on the board, right? So there are some positions and some you might think it's just like well the number of pieces on the board but actually it's it's sort of more subtle than that so there are certain kinds of positions where um there are lots of possibilities in terms of how the pieces can interact with one another and they're what we call very tactical and tactical means that um 
like short skirmishes, skirmishes of of um, you know two or three moves can can really fundamentally change the position. So you have to think very carefully. If I do this, she does that, and then I do that, and she could do this, or she could do that, and then if she does this, then I would have to do this. Like you really have to sort of think through it that way, and and your general. Um, sort of conceptual sense will, won't take you far enough. Then there are other kinds of positions that we call more strategic than tactical. And in these kinds of positions, sometimes there are important tactics that are sort of lurking underneath the surface and you have to be alert for them. But for the most part, what's happening in the game is um, changes in the overall configuration, the, the the structure of how the pieces and pawns are set up, um, squares that are weak, maybe the king is becoming weaker, maybe a pawn is advancing farther, you know, these sort of general things that are very important. You have to have very good judgment as to what you're going for. And you always have to think um, clearly as to what are the possible moves, but you don't have these skirmishes that are sort of arising that can really change the nature. So in one type of position, you might have to think, you know, many moves deep, and you might have to think very many moves deep, like in a couple of particular lines. And then in another kind of position, you may not really have to think very deep, but you may have to judge very carefully, like what what are the kinds of ways that you want the position to develop. And then in the end game, the end game just means there are much many fewer pieces left, but you're closer to the end of the game. Um, and the end game is also a place where there, you can study very specific positions and there's a body of theory about how to play positions with sort of you know only rooks and pawns and kings and only knights and pawns and so on and so forth. And some of these you might actually have to think quite long because oftentimes in these kinds of positions, um, whether you can get a pawn to the other side of the board and promote to a queen is the deciding factor. And you might have to think, you know, eight, nine, ten moves deep to really be able to see all the way through. There might be like, you know, the the pawn is making a dash for it and the and the other side's trying to stop it, but you have this way to deflect it, but they're able to do this, and so this line doesn't work. You know, like that that's what mm -hmm. it really depends on that. And by the way, this is one of the things that was a challenge for computers early on, which they're now very good at, but in the early days it was very hard for computers to decide how to allocate their limited time to figure out when they needed to go deep versus when they could just you know sort of conserve time and this is something that humans are always thinking about you have a limited amount of time to play and the clock is ticking down so you have to ask yourself when do you have to think deep and when do you just have to make a judgment hmm. So you've also been known to uh, play multiple games at once mm -hmm. uh, and kind of showmanship have you ever done one that you're also blinded yeah, so I, I um, for a long time, I, I stopped doing it about uh, two years ago, I think, but I did a blindfold uh, simultaneous chess exhibition at Berkshire Hathaway, of all places. So um, many years ago, 1998, late 1998, I sent a letter, I read all the all of Warren Buffett's letters to a shareholder, all of them at that point. And um, I was a big fan. And I said, you know, I'm, 
I'm, I'm a fan of yours and I know you like uh, bridge and I'd be happy to teach you chess. And he wrote back and saying, uh, well, you know, I'm, I'm too old to learn chess, but on the other hand, I'd love to have you come into the shareholders meeting and you could play for, for people here. And I said, well, that's great. And as it so happened, I was, I was moving across country at the time. So Omaha is like right in the middle of the country. So I made a drive of it and just sort of stopped there in the middle. And, um, and so when I played, um, just sort of on the spur of the moment, I said, well, we'll just do this blindfolded and I'll play a bunch of you at the same time. And, and people loved it. We got a big um, audience and so forth. And it's hard to believe, but for 15 years straight, I went back and I played six games simultaneously blindfolded. So like, you know, you, you, they put a blindfold across my across my eyes. I sort of sit in looking away from the boards and there's a person i say like okay i'm board war one i'm going to play this move on board two i'm going to be at that move and all the way through and then the person makes the move for me and then comes back and says okay board one plays this move and say okay well then i play that move and this board two plays this and said then i can that and so on and so forth it makes for a good show yeah i mean <laughs> i'm sure it does so especially if you win most of the games which i did by the way because <laughs> there's a there's a great um simpsons episode where bar simpson is playing like a bunch of people blindfolded in the park and then he loses loses all the games that's not that's (laughs) That's not not as impressive yeah no um but what what's going on through your mind are you do you actually see do you do you you have this short-term memory or this working memory uh kind of sketch of each board is that what is that what's happening right so okay so a couple things so first of all i'm i'm working in serial and not in parallel right so i'm not thinking about all of the games at the same time i'm thinking about each game at a time um, that's the first thing that's very important. So that's why when I would do it, um, I would always go in order one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six. If I went like one, five, two, six, three, one, four, I, I would kill me. Then the second thing is, um, it's, it's very important to think like really concentrate super hard for this first series of moves, sort of like burn the games into my memory somehow. Like just like like literally I'm like heating up. I'm like thinking so hard, like just sort of to burn them in my memory. And then what I found is um, you know, I let's say I'm like I go to board three and the person says, okay, board three plays whatever, knight to C five. And and that hearing that move brings a cascade of associations that allows me to reconstruct the position and importantly to reconstruct the ideas associated with the position right because knight c5 is not a not a random move someone hasn't just dropped the knight on that square it's a move in re, in response or reaction to something and it was probably somewhere in the sort of the constellation of ideas I was thinking about. So that that hearing that allows me to recall and associate enough ideas that I can basically reconstruct the position. Remember, we're chunking, right? So like, like I'm not necessarily remembering every single piece on every single square. I'm remembering sort of where these chunks are. And, and by doing that, I found um that you can you can basically do it like every so often i would forget something every so often i'd get a detail wrong and um you know a bishop would chop off my rook or something which happened to me once um so those things do happen but for the most part um uh for the most part you can get through it and then what i also discovered from a showmanship perspective so like every so often i i won't quite remember everything and so i'll say okay 
I just want to make sure I remember. And then I would say where every single piece and where every single pawn is. Um, and usually I get it right. Uh, uh, every so often I get it wrong. I said, nope, you're wrong about the night. So, oh, right, the night is on this square. And the audience would love this, right? Um, but it was actually very helpful for me because it would like allow me to like, you know, remember where everything is and make sure I, I, was, I had it clear. So chess has been around for a long time. And like anything that requires a lot of training or virtuosity or even skill, uh, it's it, are people getting better every year at chess the way runners are getting faster at the 100-yard dash? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So, um, so I haven't studied this in detail, but I've read about it. And also, I've, I've played through games over the last 150 years. So I can tell you what my basic sense of it is, and I'll tell you then I think what what people think. So chess in the 19th century was at a much lower level than chess in the 20th century, especially until about the 1880s, 1890s. For some reason, I don't know why, around about the 1890s, chess really got to a much higher level. And it was really the, the, the first modern grandmaster is a person named Wilhelm Steinitz, an Austrian grandmaster. Uh, but it was really Emanuel Lasker, a German grandmaster, who's, I'm talking world champions now. So Steinitz was the first sort of recognized world champion in the world. And Lasker was the second one who defeated Steinitz. And it was really um, Lasker who brought chess into the modern era. And so you can, there's almost sort of a BC, AD type of um, sort of thing in chess where, you know, there's sort of before Lasker and Steinitz, um, it's really a more primitive game. And then after Lasker and beyond, um, and then after Lasker was a, a, a champion, the next world champion was uh, Jose Capablanca. And after Capablanca was um, Russian ch uh, chess player uh, Alexander Al Alekhine. Um, and these are these people, like you see their games, you play through their games, and you can really you can imagine them playing today. Whereas like the 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 people who preceded them, even by 10 or 20 years, like you say, like, yeah, the these people like just like skipped a whole bunch of like of lessons about like how you're supposed to play the game. So that's sort of the first big jump. And then the second thing I would say is um, the 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 average chess level definitely seems to have continued to evolve from there. You can really see from the sort of pre World War II, post World War II period, post World War II, the the average level of the top players continues to get better. And I think you can just sort of see in the games an evolution and maturation uh, of the of the general level. So that's sort of the second thing. And I think it, it sort of flattens off to some degree, but you, but you can absolutely see that evolution. The third thing is, third way to look at it is, remember I was talking a little while ago about chess openings, right? Well, the the chess openings evolved at a really rapid rate in the first half of the 20th century and complete, continued to evolve since then. But the, the chess openings you see like in the in the in the latter part of the 19th century and even the first decade or two of the 20th century the the subsequent sort of 30 40 years you see like most of what we would think of as modern chess openings really evolve and so with those openings come a whole set of concepts and ideas that got incorporated into the way people think about the game and 
through that, you can see the evolution of um, the the range of chess ideas, sort of the depth and breadth of chess ideas was just really exp exp sort of exploding. Having said that, like Alaska or a Capablanca of of the sort of 19 teens or 20s, even operating within a much narrower set of positions, you you would see those games and you could say, all right, like you could absolutely see a top grandmaster 100 years later if they chose to play that kind of game, that kind of opening, you like that's a recognizably modern game. So sort of like there's been this, there was this sort of this widening of chess ideas, um, but the sort of the absolute level still getting better, but not as dramatically as happened at the beginning of the 20th century from the 19th century. And then the last thing is people have done analyses because so far we've been sort of talking at almost sort of like a, this sort of conceptual level, but then there's a, almost sort of the mechanical level. Well, do the, do the chess players just make fewer bad moves or do they sort of like see more variations like that? And um, people have done computer analyses of the games, right? So you take sort of the top chess players, games from the top chess tournaments from, say, the 30s, 40s, 50s, and then compare them to, you know, now or 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And you just run them through, you just have computers look at them and just, you, you just have the computers analyze, like, how many mistakes were made, sort of how much did, did the players deviate from the best moves. And it does seem like even on that level, the the overall level of chess has improved, right? It does seem like grandmaster, and and I think that's the closest parallel to running the the you know running the mile faster. You know, like it's not we're not running a different kind of mile. We're not sort of running over a different terrain. We're somehow like taking exactly the same terrain and just sort of like running a little bit faster. And I don't know exactly how to quantify that. Other people do. I I don't have that sort of uh, knowledge, but but I think it has gotten better. Um, although I think it's gotten much less, like the improvement has been much less marked over the last sort of three to four decades, right? That they're like, like mm -hmm. once you start getting to sort of the 1980s and 1990s, there's like very little difference between how they were playing there and how they're playing now. Although I might be proven wrong if someone actually had the the data in front of them and could point to it. Well, I guess that, that my 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 last question is sort of a two-parted question. One is, is there something that we are going to learn from the way that computers have bested us at chess uh, that will help us make the next big leap? Uh, or, in chess? Yeah, in chess or, or in anything else. Um, uh, and or is there something about the coming uh, revolution of virtual reality that you think might change the way we play the game? So the first question... Um, I used to have this theory 20 odd years ago that you'd have this sort of like computers would have to surpass humans twice at chess. Like computers would surpass us first and then humans would, you know, sort of learn and adapt and then computers would get right, better. And obviously at some point, like you could never make up the difference. That wasn't really borne out. I mean, what really happened, I think, has been sort of a steady improvement. So that's a little bit of a pessimistic take, which is to say that from that perspective, I don't think humans really um, like learn that much from the computers. Mm -hmm. But but I think that's too simplistic because what what also happened, which I certainly like understood would happen but didn't anticipate anything liked, the degree to which it would happen, is computers became tools, right? So 
Remember I was describing earlier how I became better at chess. How did I become better at chess? Well, I read through books and I read the, you know, the games annotated say by Bobby Fischer and I would go to chess tournaments and I'd play a game and then I'd analyze the game afterwards. I'd have a score sheet where all the moves were written down. I'd analyze it with my opponent afterwards and then I'd come home and then I'd analyze it myself and so forth. Well, a computer just like massively accelerates all of that, right? Um, so first of all, um, you can find opponents online, right? any time of day, and you can play umpty umpty number of games that you want, right? So you just, the, the sheer experience level is just like massively exploded in sort of this compressed amount of time. And, and if you're a kid, you can imagine what that means. Secondly, uh, the computers allow you to store the games and to access unimaginable amounts of information, right? So you literally, literally, millions of games played by the best grandmasters and also increasingly by computers, by the way, who are now better than we are. And you can access those games for ideas. And then not only are you accessing what, and by the way, you can prepare for your opponent. So you, you can know, and of course your opponent can prepare for you. So like everybody knows what everybody has, has done. And so everybody's like has to constantly sort of spin around and iterate um, all the time. And then the third thing is the computer itself is giving you this feedback. So you can play through your you, you enter your game into the computer and then the computer helpfully shows you all the mistakes you made and all the mistakes your opponents made and then if you're really good at it and of course the best chess players are good at it because they have to be you use the computer not just to take the first thing that they tell you but you push the computer and you probe and it's it's as if you're exploring this dark cave and now all of a sudden you're exploring this dark cave but you're doing it with like floodlights and horses and you know like you know grappling hooks you just have so much more access to to the ability to find out more so the ability to just that that flywheel of that feedback loop is just running so much better so it allows us to get much better and I think to reach our potential um, and, and, and of course push our potential out. But only to a smaller degree, I think, does it actually expand the number of ideas that we access in the game itself. And I think that's a, another way of saying that chess was actually relatively mature at a conceptual level. Like like it was not in the 19th century, but it was relatively mature at a conceptual level at the beginning of the 21st century when we had this computer technology. It's not to say that it isn't continuing to expand. It's not to say we might not yet reach sort of further heights, but I think at that that conceptual sort of headroom was sort of much lower when the computers sort of got to the point where they became these fantastically talent, fantastically powerful tools, and it was sort of a hundred plus years earlier, so that it enables humans to reach their potential like so much more quickly, and enables to, us to push ourselves and get that much incrementally better. I think it also expands the game, but only expands the game some. And then for the ability for us to learn things that the computers can't do. Sadly, the computers have just gotten better so fast. They've gotten so good so fast that I think that was just a pipe dream. So, yeah, I mean, I, I imagine like your future eight-year-old self, instead of reading the book, you know, being in a virtual reality and playing Bobby Fischer. Uh, right. So, that, that, so that was the second part of your question, which is uh, virtual reality. I think the virtual reality is has much more to do with the sort of aesthetic or entertainment aspects and much less to do with the conceptual or learning aspects, right? And I think, and that doesn't have to be the case 
for for any domain I, but i just think for chess chess is so well represented in a very simple two-dimensional you know sort of you know chessboard and pieces there really isn't anything that's conceptually added by bringing 3D and bringing effects and all that stuff. Now, other fields are different, right? Like I've heard, for example, people have told me that Stanford's um, football team like really values virtual reality because it enables them to run plays, and 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 there the represent the representation capacity is greatly enlarged by having VR as opposed to just sort of having a notebook and running through it and. Or whatnot, and then of course, like you know, it's hard to run plays on the field, right? So being able to do it virtually is is, is very efficient. It, not so much for chess, I think. Yeah, in fact, I wondered whether it would be detrimental because you wouldn't have that time to learn all of the sort of conceptual information that you need to learn if everything, if you're getting this kind of rewarding experience immediately, and you know. The 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 idea of like literally working through a game multiple times with kind of pen and pens, paper and pencil, you know, it's a different slowing down learning so that you could actually have deeper understanding. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Um, but, but again, I don't think that's a virtual reality thing. I think, I think all the other, like the, the, just having a screen for chess, which after all is a board with pieces, like the screen is an absolutely perfect representation from, from the perspective purely of learning and absorbing information. Obviously, it's very different from, from an aesthetic or an entertainment perspective where it might bring a whole new dimension to it. Great. Well, thank you for being on Inquiring Minds, Patrick Wolf. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Even though I've been invited, just remind me not to talk to random blindfolded people at Berkshire Hathaway shield hurler <laughs> meetings. Um, that's just <laughs> insane to me. Uh, but the thing that really uh, struck me is the way their memory sort of works, this idea of chunking and how they're able to recall in a certain way makes a huge difference versus the average player. Yeah, this is something that's fascinated me for a long time. As I've become a better musician and my understanding of music, for example, has increased, and it's easier for me to see the patterns in music than someone who has never studied that you know, genre, in my case, it's classical music. And But if you see somebody who's a prodigy or who's able to do some, some very complex skill much better than you, it seems a little magical. And I think that's where a lot of the this talk about talent comes in, you know, it seems like, well, you know, their brains just work differently. Um, and the answer is, yes, their brains do work differently. But that isn't something that you can't develop through practice. Like, I'm not saying that practice accounts for 100% of the variability and the greatest chess masters, but it does make a difference. And so this is what it seems that practice does it sort of changes the way you represent the pieces on the chessboard um, so that if I gave you you know a series of random symbols to remember you'd be pretty bad at it but if those symbols were a b c d e f g h i j k l m n o p q r s t u v w x y and z <laughs> that's very easy for you to remember that's one chunk it's the alphabet um, so but for someone who doesn't know how to read or know their letters it would seem magical that you should be able to remember all of these different symbols um, so that's what fascinates me about sort of 
you know, the study of chess masters is that they do develop a different way in which they can represent the pieces on the board. Um, And in some ways, it's interesting because it kind of tells a story, right? Like there's one thing leads to another, there's a narrative there. And you can use the kind of, you know, one move after another as a scaffold to help you remember. Uh, So that's, uh, that's really interesting to me. We spent a lot of time on this show talking about memory. And we, we've also talked about, you know, memory sort of quote unquote, degrading, mostly like that we get more distracted as we age. So do we see chess players probably have this similar effect? They probably can't chunk this as well as they get older and slow down or is so I'm wondering if there is something to this idea of like these young teenage savants, like from the the Bobby Fishers of the world. Um, there's something to how they're able to compartmentalize some of this information that makes them so good. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question because, you know, we, we can divide intelligence into two sort of major types, fluid and crystallized. Fluid being sort of your quick thinking, your ability to hold multiple things in mind and manipulate them. That declines after about age 30 or even earlier for some people. Um, but crystallized intelligence remains relatively simple, uh, stable. So that's your that's your wisdom. So you could imagine that if you already did have the chunking done, um, the sort of numbers of chunks that you can have stored in your brain would remain the same, but your ability to pull them up and manipulate them in order to figure out what the best strategy is uh, might decline with age. So maybe that's why we see a drop off. But, you know, I also think that as you get older and if you can, you know, continue to learn more and more uh, moves and, 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 you know, ways of chunking, then presumably your crystallized intelligence as it continues to increase. I mean, at some point, those two curves are, are, are going to lead, you know, to a, a kind of plateau. But anyway, that, it is an interesting question. But I do think that compared to a lot of other uh, sort of feats of, of uh, skill or, or, you know, complexity, chess probably resists age uh, more so than, than other things, but maybe not. Any desire to become a chess grandmaster after all of this? Oh, it's way too late for me. (laughs) But, you know, it did make me want to play again. I have to say, Uh, you know, my husband and I have always sort of had this dream of, you know, someday when AJ goes to bed, we can sit at the table and have a glass of wine and start playing chess. And uh, this this makes me more motivated uh, to do that. But, you know, that's only when there are no more episodes of Westworld. Yeah, that sounds delightful, except for the chess part. (laughs) Great. Well, that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd like to also thank our supporters on our new Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Kyle Raihala, Jonathan Worsley, Shu Shi Lin, Eric Clark, John Kirk, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com, and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, your best chest moves, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by Art Bishop Adam Isaac in cooperation with the Climate Desk. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chian. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. And once again, this episode was brought to you by Crazy Good Turns. 
Crazy Good Turns is a new hit podcast celebrating people who do amazing things for others. This holiday season, hear the story of one single mother's joy and gratitude upon receiving a donated tree and how she inspired a group to play Santa and spread cheer by delivering trees to those who would otherwise go without. Check it out at crazygoodturns.org or search Crazy Good Turns on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And once again, today's episode was brought to you by Heifer International. Heifer International's mission is to end hunger and poverty while caring for the earth. Heifer International works to end hunger by providing livestock, agricultural training, tools, and education to small-scale farmers. So give a gift of Heifer this holiday season. Check out heifer.org slash mines for more information or call 888-548-6437. That's heifer.org slash mines. Heifer International, help end hunger. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.